Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, broadcasting remotely. Everyone is struggling in some way, but as a parent, when I read a public health alert from the Connecticut Child Advocate on October 30th, it made me really worry. The alert said in the past four weeks, Connecticut has lost four young teens to suicide in one month's time. And that doesn't account for attempts or the number of youth in crisis as I talked to you two weeks into November. Today, where we live, what is the state of Connecticut doing to address the mental health needs of children and teens in the pandemic? No one knows what the long-term effects of social isolation and remote learning will be. But is Connecticut allocating enough resources to support mental health services and suicide prevention? Advocates say no. We'll talk with them today. First, if you or someone you know is struggling, there's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. There's also a free crisis text line for emotional crisis support. You can text HELLO to 741-741. That's uh, confidential and available 24-7. And in Connecticut, you can also connect with 211 for mobile crisis providers for both youth and adults. I want to welcome first to our show, Faith Voswinkle. She's Assistant Child Advocate for the State of Connecticut, where she leads the office's work on child fatality review and prevention. Faith, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. It's nice to be here. Also with us is Ann Daigle. She's co-founder of the Brian Daigle Foundation and Brian's Healing Heart Center for Hope and Healing. And she's a member of the Connecticut Suicide Advisory Board. Ann, welcome to our show. Thank you, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here as well. I wanted to start with you, Faith, and I wanted to read uh, some stats from the CDC, uh, which surveyed Americans in June about mental health. And nearly one third of all respondents said that they're reporting symptoms related to anxiety and depression. About one in 10 said they had, quote, seriously considered suicide. But when this survey looked at young people uh, between 18 and 24, the number who said they'd seriously considered suicide was one in four. Can you respond to these statistics? Well, I think it's, you know, I mean, I, I think it's cause for alarm. Um, I think it was part of the reason we uh, issued the public health alert uh, that we issued two weeks ago um, in Connecticut. Uh, while our focus was on children, because I do the child fatality work, um, it's not to say that uh, the issues um, that we experienced for the month of October with the loss of uh, four young people to suicide, um, the same thing wasn't uh, equally concerning for uh, folks over the 18 and, and you know, into way into adulthood. Um, this is a time of, of great despair for, for people. Uh, and I think we're particularly worried about um, going into the winter months um, with less access to outside, less access to uh, preferred activities. Um, we are in a state of a natural disaster uh, in this country, in this state, uh, in the world. And, um, you know, the likes of which have not been in any of our lifetime. Do you feel like suicide as a public health crisis is overshadowed by the fact that we're in this public health pandemic? 
Yeah, well, I think the 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 overshadowing is is that there's there's the consequence to this pandemic um, aside from the the physical illness, um, the the death of the, the loss in our state of over four thousand people um, that we have, and that's just from you know the illness of of COVID. You you have the sort of the collateral damage of all of the implications of that. You know, kids have lost grandparents, adults have lost parents. Um, you know, young people have lost their lives. And the ripple effect of that, um, quite frankly, Lucy, is just stunning. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, the, the, the mental health um, in this country um, is uh, the trauma of this event of COVID um, and the long lasting implications. Uh, it's going on much longer than people had, had thought. Um, and so you have the trauma of COVID, the trauma of loss, and then you have the trauma of trauma and, the, and, and not only the loss of people, but the loss of, of sort of everything, connection with family, um, you know, going out and doing all of the things that we love. Um, so it is, we are, we are all, I think, significantly traumatized um, and, and uh, we, we need access to the supports that are going to help us through this. Uh, we need population public health model that addresses um, you know, the, the, the mental wellness of, of folks in our state. When we think about children and teens and all of the stress that's on each one of us in this pandemic, what does that look like from the perspective of children and how it's different than what adults may be experiencing, Faith? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing that I always talk about, Lucy, with um, kids, even, you know, even the brightest kids, you know, the, the, our brain until we're into our into our 20s is still developing. And so for kids, the, the, the cause and effect, you know, we, we call the super pathways in, in the brain aren't fully developed. Um, so their despair um, in any given time can feel like they, they just can't get out of it. Um, whereas adults, we have a little bit more resiliency. We have world experience. We have all of those things and our brains are, you know, fully developed for kids. Everything is more immediate here and now. I feel so bad right now. I can't see things getting better tomorrow. Um, and for them, you know, I mean, we, we know that kids have lost, you know, graduations and proms and, you know, all of these rites of passage and the connections to, you know, friends and, and activities and all of the things that are, are really important. And for kids, connectedness, you know, is the essence of, you know, who they are. I mean, I think back if, you know, if, if there wasn't the social aspect of school, I don't think my daughter would ever gone to school. You know, it was really about being with people. Um, and so all of those things are at a loss. And, and so for kids, um, this can be really confounding and compounded. Um, they feel like the end is, and, and you know, it's not, we, we will get through this. We, we have hope, um, there are supports out there, but for kids, um, the anxiety and the depression, and we're hearing this from superintendents really around the state, people were prepared for the level of anxiety that kids were having. They were unprepared for the level of depression that kids are experiencing. Um, and that's very worrisome. This is where we live as we talk about the need to address mental health needs for Connecticut children and teens, especially in the pandemic. The Office of Child Advocate put out a public health alert last month after four Connecticut teens died by suicide. Uh, you just heard Faith Voss-Winkle, who's Assistant Child Advocate for the state of Connecticut. I wanted to bring into the discussion now uh, Ann Daigle. She's again co-founder of the Brian Daigle Foundation. This was named after her son, Brian. Uh, Ann, welcome again to the show and tell us about Brian. 
Brian was uh, just like everybody else. He was a, had a great personality, a huge smile, um, always there to reach out and help his friends. Um, but at the same time, he was trying to help everyone else. He didn't know how to help himself with his anxiety and his depression. I understand you lost him nine years ago to suicide. Yes, it was nine years ago yesterday. Mm. I'm so sorry. As a parent, that's really heartbreaking. Um, well, when I was thinking about uh, this public health alert that the child advocate put out and the four teens that have died recently, uh, there was a quote from one of the parents uh, who said, it was just so hard to understand. Nobody knew he was sad. We never saw anything. And that's one of my biggest fears as a parent, to not know if my child is struggling. So what can you share with parents about how they should talk with their children about their feelings? Well, I think they should have a conversation about their feelings, just like they have a conversation. We've sat around the, the dinner table. We've sat around the kitchen talking about what children should do, what young adults should do for not to drink not to drink and drive, about drugs, about sex, about all of that. But yet we hesitate to talk about the most important conversation about our mental health. If we have this conversation, just like we have with any other, any other issue in our lives, then I think people will be more comfortable talking about it. You work with school groups uh, through the foundation. So tell me about some of the uh, the programs or even how schools can approach mental health of uh, their students uh, as well as staff, because we're in these these times where we're not getting uh, that kind of, of contact that uh, before the pandemic, where we might see our teachers or they may see students just a couple times a week. And right. I, I understand that. And it's very challenging during COVID and this isolation. But I think what we can do now, since we do have a little bit more downtime, we can educate ourselves, the teachers, the staff, even our students. There are amazing programs out there to teach you about suicide prevention and education. There are evidence-based programs that will teach you to ask what signs to look for, what, what to look for in your children, what are the warning signs, what, are, what puts people at risk. Um, and just having this conversation with people and giving them some tools in their toolbox to use if they have any doubt whatsoever. Uh, Faith, I wanted to bring you back into the discussion uh, because, uh, you know, what is the what are some responsible ways to talk about suicide in our communities in a way that uh, we can break down stigma? Uh, but also, uh, as I was talking with Anne about, like having parents and adults feel comfortable bringing this up with uh, children and, and finding ways to have them open up. Yeah, I, you know, I think one of the biggest uh, myth busters here, Lucy, is that never be afraid to actually ask someone if they're thinking about suicide or they're thinking about hurting themselves, or if you're seeing something um, that looks like despair, you know, someone's really, their, their behavior's different, everything about them is different, they're, you know, they're carrying themselves differently, they don't smile, they're not engaged. Um, never be afraid to ask someone uh, the very tough but, but important question, you know, are you thinking about hurting yourself? because I'm here to help. There are resources out there. And what we know from people who have survived uh, attempts is that if, 
or was or were contemplating suicide and someone actually asked them the question if they were thinking about suicide that that their pain is being seen um so so asking that question does not plant the seed of suicide in someone we know that that is absolutely false asking the question lets people know that they're being seen you know parents you know and if you're not comfortable saying that just checking how are you doing these are hard times for all of us um you know i have my days of, of feeling this way how are you feeling it's really hard and uh you know you're not seeing your friends and you know we're not in school and we're not doing our sports or our, you know chess or whatever it is that we're involved with um you know, and, and that's hard. And I want you to be able to talk to me and tell me how you're feeling. Open those conversations, as Anne said. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so it's, I think it's, it's really critical. And this, and, and the stigma, you know, if, if I was, if I was, if I had some physical symptoms of something, you're going to go to the doctor to have it checked. But if I'm having symptoms around my mental wellness, you know, we're less apt to go and have it checked because there's something about taking care of our brain the same way we take care of our heart and our lungs and all of those other things that, um, you know, we, ha we have to, we have to stop. We have to, we have to take care of our, our brains. We have to take care of our mental health. Mm -hmm. uh, and that starts with, you know, asking people, how are you doing? And, you know, and, and not in a perfunctory way, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Uh, Anne, when we think about uh, age-appropriate ways to talk with uh, children and teens at risk, uh, are there, there different strategies that you would recommend? Well, I think that um, getting all the tools that you need and just being open and honest and, and like Faith said, um, sharing your own vulnerability as an adult, saying, you know, I'm really having a hard time with this myself you know, this must be really hard for you not seeing your friends. So just being open and honest and having these conversations and talking about our mental health, as, as Faith said, the same as our physical health. Um, that's so important. You know, there are, there's so many ways that we can get this conversation out there and just have it a normal conversation um, and, and keep it going. You know, don't just, it's not just a one and done. It's always checking in with people. Uh, for months on end. I understand through your foundation, the Brian Daigle Foundation, that you run support groups for family members who've lost loved ones to suicide, Anne. Can you talk about how you're reaching people in this pandemic and for people who may be listening, who are looking for support, how they can find you? Yeah, so the, the support group for loss to suicide is an amazing group of people who are willing to put themselves out there and be open. And once they come to the group, I know how difficult it is coming to your first, second or third support group. It was for myself, it's challenging, but once you get there, there is an instant connection with others who understand. We can share things about um, our loved one's loss, about what happened, about the event, all of that where we're not able to talk to, to others around us who have not experienced it. It's all about connecting to others who, who totally understand where you're at. And it's okay. It's okay to feel whatever you need to feel. People can find us. People have been finding us through our website, through the Connecticut Suicide Advisory Board, I'm also a member of the Connecticut chapter of um, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So our support group is listed on our Connecticut uh, website as well. 
You're hearing Ann Daigle here on Where We Live. Also with us is Assistant Child Advocate Faith Voss. Voswinkle. They're going to both stay with us as we continue to talk about the mental health needs of Connecticut children and teens. Uh, up next, we're going to talk with community providers. and We want to find out uh, from their perspective what they've noticed about um, how our kids are dealing with life in this pandemic. And you can join our conversation. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Again, uh, if you are in crisis, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. And there's also 211. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. We've been talking about mental health needs for Connecticut children and teens, especially in the pandemic. Joining us now are two women who lead organizations that provide services to children and their families. On Zoom, Alice Forrester, CEO of Clifford Beers in New Haven, a community-based mental health provider for children and families. Alice, welcome to our show. Thank you. Also with us is Ann Smith, Executive Director of AFCAMP Advocacy for Children. It's a parent-led nonprofit promoting family voice equity and improved outcomes across Connecticut's child-serving systems. And Ann is also Tri-Chair of Connecticut's Children's Behavioral Health Plan Implementation Advisory Board. Ann Smith, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start with Alice. A few times now I have shared the National Suicide Prevention Hotline and the fact that Connecticut residents can call 211 for help. But there's also something called the Warm Line, and that's something Clifford Beers uh, has launched. Tell us what that is. Oh, thank you, Lucy. Um, so it, during the beginning of the COVID in New Haven, the mayor, uh, Justin Elliker, called me and said, we're really concerned around the mental health of our folks in New Haven. Are there some solutions you can make? And we put together a work group of um, mental health and human service providers in the city. And one of the ideas that came out of there was this um, idea of creating a warm line or a helpline for people, um, not only to get information like they can through 211 or connection uh, to services, but who would it would be answered live and you could just talk uh, to a live person. And so we opened this line and uh, received quite a few calls and then we uh, expanded it across the state. It's called Reach Out Connecticut. And if you call the 1-844-TALK-4CT um, and we also have a text messaging support, mental health support system, people call from all over the state just to about half of them call for need, you know, social determinants, needing help with rent or uh, food. But a lot of people are just calling to talk and say, you know, I need somebody outside my family to talk to. Um, if there, if there are symptoms or, um, you know, we we screen to see if they're feeling like they want to hurt themselves, suicidal. Um, we will definitely hot link them to nine one one or two one one. So. But it's basically just a voice uh, to talk to, someone to um, talk about your feelings and what's going on. We have some teens calling. We have a lot of adults who are, who are alone. Um, and we also have some, some folks who just don't want to talk to anybody else other than you know, someone outside their family. 
Thank you for explaining that, Alice. Again, the warm line that uh, Connecticut residents can call is one eight four four talk four ct And I really like the idea behind this, where it's not necessarily you are in crisis, but you need someone to talk with. You mentioned that teens have been calling. And so can we talk a little bit about, you know, what you have been seeing and hearing uh, at the Clifford Beers Clinic uh, with uh, young people in this pandemic? What are they experiencing? Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting. We have had a uh, lower amount of folks coming through the traditional portals for services, you know, calling the clinic for help. Um, We have an emergency. We're part of the mobile crisis response for the state of Connecticut. So if you did call 211, um, we respond. And those calls have increased uh, over the summer and, and even more so in the beginning in fall. Um, in particular due to school or school refusal. Um, But uh, we have been able to do some creative out-of-the-box things. First of all, the idea of moving to telemedicine, telehealth, and being able to call people and see them online through uh, WebEx or um, on the phone has been uh, a lifesaver for uh, for many, many folks, and that has um, been an unusual thing for us to do. That's not something we were able to do uh, pre-COVID. Um, but the kids and the families um, are, a lot of them are, you know, really struggling with the um, very basic needs, in particular in uh, Norwalk, where we serve folks and in New Haven. Um, they're losing their work. Um, many um, deaths within the family. And I think the thing that has been so strongly apparent to us is that the traditional um, things that we do when someone dies, one is, you know, be by their bedside. Um, If you're lucky to get into hospice and then have a funeral where your families can gather and then have friends and family, you know, bring food to the house. Those rituals that we do Um, around um, death are broken uh, during this pandemic. So not only are we having folks who have multiple family members that they're losing, they're not able to process it in the very, uh, you know, somewhat traditional way that we do in our country. So um, the the layer of grief, um, it's almost like the grief is not allowed any expression right now. And so that we know, um, you know, from a mental health perspective, that's going to be a real problem, um, you know, in the future. And yes. And Alice, how does that manifest in children and teens when their families are going through a lot, uh, not just uh, thinking about sickness or death from uh, COVID, but these uh, economic stresses and and again, being isolated uh, from people you'd normally see? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think um, it's really important. Teens and kids don't express it the way maybe an adult would through words and talking about their feelings of sadness or loss. You know, what you'll see is is, um, disturbances in their sleep, uh, disturbances in eating, uh, the normal uh, relationships, not interested in talking to their friends, um, having feelings of um, aggression, anger, anxiety, uh, not wanting to even go out and take a walk, um, you know, the, the any sort of behaviors that you see that are not, 
usual or, or um, uh, something that you would have seen in your child before. You know, I think that those are good warning signs. Um, eating and sleeping are really good ones. Overeating or um, not eating much. Um, those are, are things that you really want to pay attention to. And I think, as Anne said earlier in faith, you, you really need to ask those questions at the dining room table. How are you doing? How are you sleeping? Are you having nightmares? Are you thinking about things, um, you know, that are uh, making you afraid? So, um, but I think that making sure we understand that our kids don't show these symptoms in a way that would make sense linked to depression. Mm. You're hearing Alice Forrester here on Where We Live, CEO of Clifford Beers in New Haven. I wanted to go to Ann Smith, again, Executive Director of the AFCAMP Advocacy for Children. And your organization serves uh, children and families in the Hartford area. What are you seeing and experiencing in the last several months? We are seeing um, much of the same that um, Alice has described um, in terms of the impacts of COVID-19. We are looking at increasing and persistent stressors that our families are experiencing. Uh, What's important is that the uncertainty, the economic stresses, and and the grief that uh, we are experiencing have an impact on children because the children observe and react to the stress and behaviors of the adults. And right now, the adults are also struggling um, to manage all of the impacts that are significant and growing around COVID-19. We saw a tremendous increase in the need for basic needs supports. um, And we were able to reach out to just a small segment of our our client base to be able to provide those kinds of supports. But when you think about um, the fact that in Hartford, we are looking at a large percentage of the population who struggle even pre-COVID and outside of any epidemic or other kind of event, this is something that has just compounded and exacerbated their experience. But I think also what it has done is it has shed light on disparities that many of us know exist and have been working to eradicate for a long period of time. But what has come out of the COVID-19 pandemic um, cannot be, it can't be swept under the rug. It cannot be ignored in terms of its um, disproportionality um, and impact on communities of color. And uh, Ann Smith, how does your organization work with uh, the Hartford Public Schools to identify and respond uh, to children and families in need? And with the fact that for some time the school district was remote, I think now they're in hybrid. Um, So how do you reach out to them and where are some of the gaps? I can say that we have had a, a close working relationship with the Hartford Public Schools District for a long, long time. From our inception, uh, we started working as an organization that supported families of children with disabilities. And so working with the 
school system around the special education needs of, of students, especially students of color, um, students who whose parents would not have access or resources to ensure that their children are receiving a free and appropriate public education as is guaranteed by federal law under the Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act. And I would say this about Hartford Public Schools in their efforts to be responsive to the needs of families and students during COVID in particular, and reaching out to community organizations um, such as ours and many others to help them to put together their response plans um, and their plans for um, returning to learn. I would say that they have really tried to reach out to families. And so the opportunity that presented itself for us to do more work around family engagement and collaboration with the Harvard Public School Systems to make sure that we were identifying what the challenges were. Now, I'm not going to say that all of those challenges were successfully met. We're looking at an under-resourced district here. Um, we have had many reports from families that they have not been able to benefit from distance learning. I would say though, that's probably not something that you can squarely lay at the door of just your local school district. Um, we need to, even though we are a local rural state, we do need to really look at what needs to be done at our state level to address some of the issues that our local school districts are facing. I'm glad you bring up that point, Ann Smith, because I wanted to ask you and Alice Forrester, what does a coordinated plan, a, a response from the state look like? What should it look like? What do you still need, Ann? Well, this is Ann. Uh, and well, Go ahead, Alice. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think um, Ann said it exactly right. I think uh, at this point, we can't expect the local municipalities to address the, you know, overload um, of various barriers, uh, both to school and to address this, you know, public health epidemic. Um, one of the things that I've seen in the state and I think could really highlight is the um, Department of Education and uh, local community providers have been meeting over the last few months to look at ways of creating bridges between systems of care. So, uh, you know, you usually have your outpatient clinics, maybe you might have a school-based health clinic, but what we're doing, you know, down in New Haven is we're working with principals and going through the list of all the kids in the school and helping call and check in. I know it, um, you know, we wouldn't normally as a mental health agency sort of cold call someone and say, hey, how's your, you know, how's things going? But this is a crisis. And so you want to understand how um, both the kids who are actively involved in the distant learning, but kids who are not. Uh, this week, New Haven has done uh, canvassing, street canvassing. We've joined them, knocking on families' doors, just checking in. How can we help? Um, you know, there's very technical problems, meaning internet or um, not having enough uh, devices. We have kids, families with seven kids. Uh, the bandwidth isn't big enough. 
uh, to, uh, you know, having some, you know, real issues, as Ann mentioned, you know, around food and, and, and safety. So um, the, the, the state needs to, and uh, I, I think we all have this intention to actually work closer together. We have a lot of systems, a lot of resources in the state, but they're not all working together. And I think that's something that I see the beginning of that really happening. Um, but it's going to need some dollars and some real true commitment. Um, and Ann Smith, Ann Smith, how do you uh, ask, answer that question about what a statewide coordinated response should look like to help the families that you're serving? I would agree with much of what Alice has just pointed out. I would take it a next step further in that we have in place the roadmap to get us to that point where we are working more effectively, more collaboratively across all of our state agencies. Uh, if we take a look at the Children's Behavioral Health Plan, um, which was developed uh, in response to um, the Sandy Hook tragedy, um, we see a roadmap for getting uh, multiple state agencies to work together we, subsequent to the adoption of that plan, um, the legislature created the advisory board. And this advisory board comprises 12 state agency partners who all touch our children's behavioral health system. Alice mentioned that what needs to happen is that there needs to be the political will to make the investment in to our children's behavioral health system so that we can intervene early. We can make sure that we create a system that provides equitable service opportunities across our, our state. And that also is a system that can acknowledge and respect cultural norms uh, and traditions we are a very diverse state and solutions that are developed in terms of policies and service provisions need to be responsive to the needs of all of Connecticut's children. We need to work harder to bring together the different state systems because lots of times the challenge is that you may have uh, a couple of state agencies that may be working on the same issue, but not necessarily communicating with each other as effectively as it needs to happen. And then also taking a look at where is the opportunity for the state to leverage the significant resources that they are already making, if they can do a, a better job of analyzing where we are making investments and where are the opportunities to leverage those dollars, um, where can we do blended and, and braided funding that will allow us to expand the scope of services that are available to our children. I think we have to do that because we are facing unprecedented and growing impacts from COVID-19 
And as we can see from just the last few weeks, we have rising numbers of infections. We are looking at the potential for rolling back even further than phase 2.1. We are getting into the winter months and we know that it's going to become more challenging to be in close quarters if we have a return to distance learning for everyone, which is not necessarily allowing for education of all of our students. We know that we are gonna have students that are going to be falling further behind. We're gonna have parents. Parents are not trained to be educators, but they're being asked to do that. That adds mm -hmm. another level of stress to just mm -hmm. the economic uncertainty, employment, either uh, unemployment or uncertainty about continuation of employment, inability to observe your cultural traditions in terms of even Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was a, going to be an opportunity for many families to, to come together in a way that they had not been able to. And for many, that's not going to be able to be. Uh, and before yeah. uh, we had to break, you know, I started the show talking about um, you know, several suicides uh, in a span of four weeks in Connecticut. I understand even before the pandemic, the country has been seeing a rise in suicides among black teens. Are we seeing that here in our state? So when I, when I look at that, and thank you for raising it because I was going to, um, you know, we do know that um, there's a difference in terms of how things are reported. Um, in terms of whether it's a an attempt or, or you know whether it is a, a, a successful suicide, and so um, we are very sensitive here to what is happening with our uh, our black youth, and um, we are with some of my colleagues, for example, at our Health Disparities Institute and, and Health Equity Solutions, really taking a look at how data is reported so that we can make sure we are tracking um, those trends by race and ethnicity. And that's another area where I believe there is potential for state level action to ensure that we are all speaking the same language and reporting data in a way that can be comparative so that we can know where the gaps in our service system are and which of our children are falling through the cracks. That's Ann Smith, Executive Director of the AFCAMP Advocacy for Children, a parent-led nonprofit promoting family voice equity and improved outcomes across Connecticut's child-serving systems. And thank you for talking with us. My pleasure to have been here, although the topic is one that I wish we could have avoided. I agree. Alice Forster is also with us, CEO of Clifford Beers in New Haven, a community-based mental health provider for children and families in the New Haven area. Alice, thank you. Thank you very much. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll continue our conversation after the break. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, Governor Ned Lamont checks in with us. We only have 30 minutes, so if you want to ask a question of the governor, uh, call early. That's on Monday. Now, I wanted to turn back to our guests from the top of the show with us, uh, Faith Voswinkel, Assistant Child Advocate for the State of Connecticut, and Ann Daigle, co-founder of the Brian Daigle Foundation and a member of Connecticut Suicide Advisory Board. Uh, Faith, we just heard uh, from Ann Smith and Alice Forrester, again, uh, women who lead organizations that are working to serve children and families, uh, especially their mental health needs. And they talk about this very fragmented uh, strategy approach in our state and wanting more collaboration between uh, state agencies and how um, these communities can be served. And I wanted to just read you a statement we got from the Department of Public Health. We asked them, given the fact that your office, the Child Advocates Office, put out a public health alert in October about uh, four recent uh, suicides of young people. We wanted to find out how uh, the Department of Public Health is coordinating a plan to address mental health while we're in this pandemic. And the statement we got from DPH is that they're monitoring this situation. And then they went on to say that we do not see evidence of an increase in teen suicides in 2020, uh, going on to say that um, the suicide deaths in, in t- among teens ages 11 through 17 are slightly lower than year to date uh, 2020 than the previous five years. And I, I just felt like this statement was uh, in a way tone deaf because we wanted to find out the approach that the state is taking. And the focus was how many suicides there have been and that there is not an increase when you look at the past five years. And so I wanna find out um, from your perspective in the Office of Child Advocate, what do you want to hear and see from our governor, our Department of Public Health, and the other agencies that have been mentioned to help children in the state? Um, well, I, you know, thanks, Lucy. Um, you know, whether, whether we have an overall uh, increase um, you know, I, I guess I don't want to get into that debate uh, today, but um, we 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 felt as the Suicide Advisory Board, as the State Child Advocate, as the State Child Fatality Review Panel, that the deaths of four children in one month um, is four too many. Um, nationally, I talked to my colleagues who do child fatality review. Um, I think everybody is concerned about the mental health, not of just our children, but also the families, um, the houses that they live in, uh, their extended families, <clears throat> worries that kids have for their grandparents, their parents, um, kids whose parents are going to work in hospitals every day. And all as they hear is that, you know, people every day people are dying from COVID. So so the issue, and I, and I think the, the alert is not just about the four children that died, but it's mm-hmm. about, um, <clears throat> The, the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic. Um, you know, I think I said at the, at the beginning of the show that we need a public health model that addresses population health for this state. Um, that uh, while we have folks talking about, you know, how many hospitalizations we have for COVID, how many people have died from COVID, um, I think we need a similar approach to, you know, what is our mental health uh, approach. You know, where do we get support? Um, you know, across the lifespan. You know, not just children, not just parents and families, but our grandparents are isolated in this state. Um, you know, so so how do we, as a state, address the disaster, the natural disaster of COVID, and the impact of that? Um, we have blueprints from uh, 
the 9-11 commission that came into Connecticut during Sandy Hook to talk about what it takes to heal, um, the impact of trauma, uh, the impact of the continuation of the lack of, you know, the, the social isolation, the physical distancing, all of those kinds of things. Um, we have a blueprint for this. I think we have a blueprint in what Anne had talked about in our, our behavioral health framework. Um, so we need someone who's going to take the leadership role. Um, and, and while Anne said we have 12 state agencies that are supportive of the behavioral health, I think we're not all doing it in a collaborative and a coordinated mm. way. Um, we have Faith, pockets of greatness happening. Faith, I wanted to ask when we compare what our neighboring states are doing, investing in suicide prevention. Let's take Massachusetts, for example. What sure. is that state doing in terms of suicide prevention and mental health needs compared to what our state is doing? Yeah, I mean, it's always, you know, I mean, I think right off the bat, you know, all of the dollars that come into Connecticut for suicide prevention, I sit on the suicide advisory board and have for almost 20 years now, um, are, are all federal dollars. It's our state agencies going after federal grants to do some of the prevention work, um, you know, across the lifespan, including kids, but including adults. Um, uh, in Massachusetts, they have a $4 million uh, state line item budget to support mental health and suicide prevention. Connecticut, there's $0 in our line item to support, you know, suicide mm -hmm. in particular. Um, so, you know, that's, I think one large example is that there's a there's a lot of attention paid to that uh, in Massachusetts uh, through uh, funding a very specific line item budget. Mm. Ann Daigle's with us again. She's a parent, a survivor of suicide. Uh, you know, we think about when we have these conversations, we don't want to wait until uh, we're at a point where numbers are continuing to grow. We don't want to wait until we're at a crisis point. And so when we hear that uh, other states are, you know, allocating more resources towards suicide prevention. And what are your thoughts? Uh, well, it, it's it's disheartening to know that we don't have any funding here. And I am on the Suicide Advisory Board, so I know that. And I work also with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And I've done some advocacy work through our legislators. So just trying to get laws passed in our state to allow for suicide prevention, um, for instance, in our schools and, and having that education just as part of the curriculum has been challenging. Uh, we were making some headway to get that done um, last year, but then COVID hit. So um, unfortunately, all of those um, bills died in committee. So we weren't able to do that. But it is important that we do get more funding in here in our state um, to get this work done, you know, to ha have this conversation and to meet the needs of our community and our, our state right now more than ever. Mm. We just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, Ann Daigle, we know that the holiday season is approaching for people who are struggling right now, whether it's uh, from grief or other uh, issues going on in their life. What would you tell them? I tell them to reach out if you can. I know that first step is so difficult to do, but um, you don't have to do this alone. Even through our pandemic, there are uh, a lot of virtual resources for grief support groups throughout um, our state of Connecticut, throughout the, the country. Um, just find that connection to know that you, you're not alone and that there are others who are going through this struggle uh, that somehow survive. You know, I always try to give the message of hope. You know, find another survivor 
and look to them to be your beacon of light that you can find that and somehow make it through. Mm. And again, uh, Connecticut residents can call 211 to be connected to services. There's that warm line that people can call 1-844-TALK-4CT. And I want to thank Ann Daigle for being with us again. I really appreciate your time and co-founder of the Brian Daigle Foundation, named after her son, Brian. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Faith Voss Winkle was also here, Assistant Child Advocate for the State of Connecticut, where she leads the Office of Child Advocates' work on child fatality review and prevention. Faith, we thank you for your time as well. Thank you, Lucy, very much. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Again, Governor Ned Lamont will be on the show Monday. And if you want to join that conversation, the number is 888-720-9677. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend. <laughs>